0: Today's episode is brought to you by Dirobi. Dirobi offers a range of functional supplements that can help you with your health and wellness goals. I interviewed Dave Sherwin, the owner of Dirobi, on episode 130, and it was interesting to discuss nutritional deficiencies and how their flagship products such as Mimi's Miracle Multi and Mimi's Miracle Minerals are specially designed to fill in nutritional deficiencies such as vitamins B, D, zinc, and chromium. So check them out at that's dirobi.com, that's d i r o b i.com and use the code Lose it 10, that's LOSEIT10, that's l o s e i t 10 to save an additional 10% off your order. Find these great products at that's dirobi.com, that's d i r o b i.com and use code LOSEIT10 to save 10%. Losing weight to gain control. Today's episode Living a Low Carb Lifestyle with Dr. Lucy Burns. Welcome to today's episode of the Losing Weight to Gain Control podcast. This is Gwen Alexander, your host, and today we have a special guest with us. We have Dr. Lucy Burns, and Dr. Lucy is a GP and a lifestyle medicine physician. She works on the Morrington Peninsula in Victoria. Dr. Lucy runs a weight loss clinic called Epiphany Medical Weight Loss, and this was the inspiration to create an online learning platform to share this information far and wide. Lucy has muscular dystrophy, which impairs her mobility, and in her 20s, she managed her weight with exercise, but alas, this is no longer possible. She became overweight or obese and was insulin resistant, but eventually she lost 20 kilograms, which I think converts to about 44 pounds by adopting a low-carb lifestyle and, more importantly, has maintained this. Dr. Lucy is known for her positive, can-do nature and is an eternal optimist. Dr. Lucy also speaks at conferences for doctors on weight management, as well as events for the general public, and is now considered an expert in this field. And Dr. Lucy is also a mom of two teenage girls, which I'm sure keeps her busy. So Dr. (laughs) Lucy, welcome to the
1: podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Gwen. I really appreciate it.
0: Yes, I always love when I have uh, doctors on that also share with other doctors of, about struggles that people that may be obese or are trying to lose weight that they deal with and to please be kind to them. You know, we were talking before about how being negative doesn't usually motivate people to want to take control of their health.
1: No, absolutely. And it is, you know, one of our mantras is you can't hate yourself thin, and you can't berate yourself well. But we often think that by just, you know, giving ourselves a good kick up the pants that we will somehow, you know, motivate ourselves into doing something. And in fact, it often just keeps us stuck. So um, it's interesting. There was a little uh, a post, we have a doctor's magazine called OzDoc, because obviously from my accent, I'm from Australia. And OzDoc, um, there was a an article about you know, doctors are sometimes scared to bring up weight loss with people because it is—it is a very, you know, um, touchy subject, and people can feel, um, I guess, you know, picked on, and, and you know, often they have been throughout their whole lives. So sometimes some doctors don't know how to do it, but other doctors just come in with like a bloody blunder blast and just go, right, you need to lose weight, and then they just berate the person. You know, what have you been doing? Why haven't you addressed this? And it's really, really destructive. So um, I'm really passionate about this because people who are, who are carrying, you know, excess fat, and that's all it is. It's just adipose, which is the medical word for fat cells. It's just more fat cells. That's it. It's not, you know, we're not bad people. We're not weak. We're not um, hopeless. Our body is just storing more fat than, than is ideal. But it turns into this big thing about the person, that the person inside this body is somehow um, weak-willed and it's, it couldn't be further from the truth.
0: Yes, I love that. Uh, but before we get into some of the topic, I like the, my guests to kind of share with the listeners uh, any struggles that they've had with weight or what brought them to the point to where this is their passion to try and help other people. So can you share your story with us?
1: Absolutely. So um, I have been what I would consider an expert dieter. I started dieting from when I was sixteen, and it was all, of course, to you know look good and fit into the smallest size jeans I could possibly do. And my dieting was always I was either perfectly on a diet, very restrictive, often hungry, but in my head hunger was good because that meant I was losing weight, and so I would be on this perfect diet, or I would be on a bender where I'm going, I'm not on a diet anymore. I better eat everything I can before I go on to my next diet. So it was this really big seesaw of either this perfect restrictive diet, and I'm using air quotes, but you obviously can't see if you're listening, perfect restrictive diet or on a bender, eating everything in sight. And so I yo-yoed my whole life. And, you know, if anyone ever looks at my Um, Facebook pages it's carefully curated any of my fat photos they're they're off there's only thin photos so people look at it and think I've never had a weight problem but I most certainly have and part of it was a combination between uh, sugar addiction where you know when I was on the bender I was just gorging as much sugar as I could you know because I, I used it as a tool for emotional Comfort and various things. And then I would be so disgusted with myself that I would go, right, I need to do something about this. And I'd go on to some restrictive diet where I would lose whatever 10 kilos, which is, you know, 20 pounds or something like that. And then it was unsustainable. And I'd eventually cave and go back up. And it just on and on this went until I was about 48. And I was the heaviest weight I'd ever been, heavier than when I was nine months pregnant with my children, and I put on a lot of weight in pregnancy. And I was on this precipice of either I need to do something about this or I just give up. So, you know, there was a bit of me going, well, don't worry about it. You know, you're 48, your husband still loves you, just buy elastic-waisted pants, just get bigger sizes, just go to the cheap shop and get cheap pants, you'll be fine. And then the other half of me going, come on, you know, you're too young to give up. So then I did what I normally would do, which is I cut out all the junk, all the sugar and all that sort of stuff. And I was eating, you know, healthy, what I thought was healthy, bowls of muesli, and it and it didn't work. I stopped. It, nothing, it wasn't working. And I, I was then horrified. I'm thinking, what's going on? You know, this normally works. Here I am being all pious and I'm eating my low fat everything. And I just went and had some blood tests and realized that I was actually pre diabetic, had fatty liver, and I had high insulin levels. And that's when I went down the rabbit hole of going, right, what insulin is a whole fat storing hormone. I need to work out how to do this. And that's when I discovered my low carb lifestyle. And it was like a game changer. So that's part of the reason I called my program initially epiphany, because I felt like I'd had this epiphany. It was like, oh my God, for the first time in my life, I can actually lose some weight without hunger, And I'm full and I am just naturally eating less, which had never happened to me in my whole life. It just became this thing that I went, everybody needs to know about this. And then over the years of doing that, I've realized two things. So the low-carb lifestyle addresses the physiology, but we need to also address the psychology of weight loss and what I like to call diet trauma. So people that have done, like I had Weight Watchers, you know, every, every plan, every meal plan, every home delivery service done all of these things with the sole goal to lose weight to look good. Because in my head, that's what had to happen. I had to be thin to feel good. And that's, it couldn't be further from the truth.
0: Yeah, I like that you, you shared that with us. It sounds like you would either do one extreme or the other. There was no metal ground.
1: Absolutely. And I would always say this, oh, I'm an all or nothing girl. I'm either on or off. And and that was the story in my head for a long time. i mean, the doing a diet and people would come up to me, my friends, I mean, it's so mortifying when I think about it. And they'd go, are you on a diet this week, Lucy? And I'd go, yeah. And they go, okay, well, we we won't give you the cake. And I go, oh, it's fine. You can put it in front of me because I had willpower of iron steel when I was on a diet. But when I wasn't, What I would be doing then would be running back, trying to sneak as much cake as I can without anyone knowing. Because
0: if nobody sees it, then the calories don't count, right?
1: Correct. Yes, yes. And also that little, you know, that hiding, that eating in shame, you know, I didn't want people to be judging me for eating whatever it was. So you'd sneak it in and stuff it in quickly. It wasn't even like I was savoring it and really enjoying it. I was just shoveling it in as fast as I could.
0: Yes. And then also you said that uh, it was when you were in your almost your 50s that you realize
1: that something's just not right here. Yeah, absolutely. And this is the thing, you know, people often go, oh, I can't believe this. You know, you're a doctor. How did this happen to you? And it's like, oh, doctors are not, we're just humans as well. We use the same coping strategies as other people. When we're stressed, you know, we eat. Some people drink. Some people, you know, there's still doctors that smoke. They're doctors that gamble. You know, being a doctor doesn't make you infallible to all of those maladaptive stress coping techniques that we all know.
0: I think that whenever I find out someone that's helping me has struggled with what I'm you know, going to them for help for, it actually makes me want to listen to them more because I feel like they empathize with me. You know, if, if they're going through it and they actually admit that, Hey, I'm still deal with this. Cause I admit to everybody, I still deal with, you know, I want to eat my emotions, but I have come up with a plan of how to identify how to work through it. Uh, but that came through years of trying to
1: figure all that out. Yeah, absolutely. And learning to know yourself.
0: Yes, which I think a lot of people sometimes don't want to. It's kind of scary when you start unpeeling all of those layers of your life. And, you know, you have to start making some changes, maybe to relationships and uh, maybe your are fin- I mean, I like to talk about money, but I noticed when my finances weren't under control, my eating was not under control. So it's like yes. you know, once the food got under control then other areas of my life would kind of get straight too at the same time.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And this is the thing I often say that when we are emotionally eating it's just a, it, food is just a tool for self-soothing. It, it's all it is. It's a tool that we use to self-soothe. It's a tool that we've been modeled by, you know, our parents often did it. Our parents often gave us food when we were little to comfort us if we were sad or, you know, miserable or disappointed. You know, we're marketed to eat food for when we're miserable. So we're not bad people for doing it. It's just that a tool, it's a tool that's no longer helpful. And so we go, okay, well, we need to then find some other tools.
0: Can you ta- uh, explain to our listeners what is insulin resistance and how can they find out if they are insulin resistant?
1: Yeah, so I love talking about insulin. So insulin is a hormone that is made in our pancreas and it has its main job is to move blood glucose or glucose from the blood and into our muscles and into our liver and it does this because when our blood glucose is high it's toxic to our cells and that's why people with type 2 diabetes or even type 1 diabetes whose whose blood sugar is high that's why it causes all those destruction of their organs and their blood vessels so the pancreas goes right i need to keep blood sugar between four and six give or take so that's australian numbers and i'm sorry i can't i don't know how to do the swap into into american numbers but in australia it uses nanomoles which is so between four and six so it'll go right i'm going to do whatever it takes so the pancreas very good very kind looks after us and makes as much insulin as required to keep that blood sugar in its right level but insulin has a few side gigs that I didn't know about as a doctor, and I don't think was very, was really emphasized. But one of its side gigs is to stop fat breakdown. So, what that means is that if you have high circulating insulin in your blood, your body cannot break down its fat. It just can't. So, you can't break down your fat when you have high circulating insulin, no matter what you do. And its second, its third little side gig is it's a growth hormone. So as a growth hormone, it's implicated, therefore, in cancers because cancers are all about growing. It's implicated in high blood pressure because it grows thickness of our arteries, and we can see it grows our grows our fat tissue. But it also we see um, signs of it because it's quite hard to tell if you're insulin resistant without actually having a blood test. But there are a few signs. And one of them is skin tags. If you get a lot of skin tags around your neck or under your arms, some people get them in their groin or under their, under their breasts if they're a woman, that's a sign of insulin resistance. We also see it if, if your tummy, so if your abdominal, if, if you're storing all your fat around your belly, then that's usually an insulin issue. So the two things I always say to people are if, if you're finding it hard to lose weight weight, just normally, then you're probably insulin resistant. If you've got belly fat, you're probably insulin resistant. If you've got lots of little skin tags, you're probably insulin resistant. And the, and what, the way I like to explain it is I often talk about this, like um, imagine your body's like a fireplace and as a fireplace we need fuel. So the fuel that you get, you can either have kindling or logs, and so in an ideal scenario, you'd have some a little bit of kindling and then you put a log on. But what happens when we're insulin resistant is that we don't have any logs next to our fireplace. They're stored out in a woodshed. So our body goes, right, well, I need some fuel. So we have some carbohydrates, which are the which are like the kindling. So the carbs come in and they burn short and quick. That's why people have, you know, um, Uh, soft drinks or chocolate or something like that because it gives you a little burst of energy It, it actually does so you burn that energy and then it dies down quite quickly and what we should be doing is toddling out to our woodshed and getting a log so we go out there and we look and we can see all the logs all lined up stacked beautifully in the shed and when we go to open the door the door is locked and the lock is insulin and some people maybe have one lock. Some people have three or four. Some people have like ten padlocks on that shed, depending on how much insulin they have circulating around. So it doesn't matter what they do there; they cannot open the door. So they go back to their fireplace, which is now reading really low, and it's and they start to get a bit shaky, and they're really hungry by now, and their brain's going, "Give me something." And so again, it makes you reach for quick carbs that'll burn quickly. So what we really need to do is. Unlock the padlocks so that you can burn your own fat. And the the way we do that is to reduce the circulating insulin. And there's three things that we need to do to reduce insulin. So one is to reduce the amount of carbohydrates that we eat because insulin is released in response to carbs. Two is if we can increase our muscle mass, that's really helpful. Um, because then our body can store a bit more glucose in them. And three, for some people, they need medication, and that medication is metformin. And that's the one medication that doesn't increase insulin resistance in the management of type 2 diabetes. Um, but you can actually use metformin before you've even got a diagnosis in pre if if necessary.
0: Is that something that your doctor... Would, I mean, would some doctors say, well, you're not diabetic yet, so I, I wouldn't want to prescribe this to you?
1: Uh, it depends. Certainly in Australia, do, uh, doctors are happy to prescribe it with known high insulin levels. So you can do a blood test to check your insulin, and that's the only way you'll actually know. You can't do a finger prick. You know, we can do a finger prick to check glucose, but to check insulin as a hormone, that's a blood test. It's... um associated with another um, growth condition, I guess, called polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS. PC, PCOS yeah, or is P- what we you usually P- say. Okay, you call it PCOS, we call it PCOS. Mm-hmm. Um, and PCOS is, is not, not 100%, but 90% of people who have a PCOS have high insulin um, and metformin is used extensively there as well.
0: Uh, I'm glad you, I like the way you explained it. I, I usually ask. Anybody who I feel is an expert about insulin, you know, pretty much the same question. But sometimes it takes that one person that might explain it a certain way to make it click in someone's yeah. head. And I liked how you use the woodshed and how insulin locks the door. It's like, oh, yes. OK, I can understand that. Yeah, OK. Um, yeah. Because and it seems like it's not really taught here
1: that way. It's not taught in Australia that way either. It's not taught anywhere, but it's so once you once you've got your head around that idea that what we want to do is open our shed. And when we open our shed, then we've got access to this fuel that we've been lugging around with us. And this is the thing. If you can't access your fuel, you are actually going to be hungry. And you're going to run out of fuel. And people think, oh, you know, they'll look at someone and then they'll go, well, no wonder they're fat. Look how much they eat. And it's like, actually, no, they're eating this food because they can't access this fuel that they've got. It's not that they're willingly, you know, just eating food because they're gluttons. They're eating because they're they're literally hungry and they're running out of fuel.
0: That's what I think is hard for some people to understand, especially when you're eating certain kind of foods, like the candy bars or the cookies or Uh, Things or even the potato chips—it's like you're never full. Um, You know, you're always shoving food in your mouth, but you're never full.
1: Absolutely, and um, it's funny. I tell this little story about um, so in Australia we have these little cookies called Tim Tams, and they're sort of a chocolate-coated rectangle shape. They're very iconically Australian, and you know everybody's always talking about Tim Tams. They're probably the equivalent of the Oreos over there because I know Oreos is sort of the one of the staple biscuits. So um, and. You know, I've done this little talk about how 12 eggs has the same calories as nine Tim Tams. Now, I've certainly eaten nine Tim Tams. That wasn't a problem for me. Tim Tams are so amazingly delicious in my old brain. That was what my old brain said. And I would just sit there and I could sit there in front of the telly and eat them and I would be dunking them in my cup of coffee or to my cup of tea or I'd just be nibbling them and suddenly nine Tim Tams would go in a flash. And, in fact, the problem was that there's 11 in the pack so I just go, oh, well, might as well finish those as well. So easily, wolf down 11 Tim Tams, not a problem. There is no way I could eat 12 boiled eggs in one sitting. I would feel sick. So it's really interesting that the combination of fat and protein in in food keeps us full. It's very hard to eat fat and protein together. It's very easy to overeat carbs or fat and carbs. So the protein is what keeps us full. The carbs—they're like a never-ending. You can always fit them in. And I often talk about, like, at a at a in Australia about barbecues. I think you do over there too. And you know, you might have had the main sort of bit of barbecue. The all the meat's done, and and let's say they're handing around some plate of chops. And the chops might have the fatty bit on it and people will be going, oh, no, thanks, I'm so full, I couldn't possibly eat another chop and they all kind of get put in the kitchen. <laughs> and then suddenly they're bringing out the dessert and everyone's, everyone can fit that in. Yep. Always fit dessert in. So dessert and car- and, and chips, so sweet or savoury carbs, just do not fill us up.
0: No, and we were talking before we started recording about how the industry... I've learned how the industry actually produces their food in a way to make you never satisfied. Uh I, I've had Doritos a few times since then, but I usually actually don't eat Doritos anymore because you know I've I've read how they're made to where you're never gonna feel satisfied. So I don't want to eat that. Or most yeah. chips are that way. So um, you know, once I learned that, which I don't think some people understand how the the they manufacture this stuff it was kind of like, well, I really don't want to go towards that because I know I won't be able to stop because you're manufactured that way.
1: Absolutely. And this is an industry. Uh, they spend billions of dollars on food technicians and food scientists to manufacture this bliss point to keep us as addicted as possible. And, you know, Pringles, Pringles are right. Once you mm-hmm. pop, you can't stop. They're absolutely right. And they they want that. They want you to be addicted. They want you to be buying their product. Their techniques are very similar to the tobacco industry, which is obviously now highly regulated, especially in Australia, very highly regulated. And the food industry is sneaking under with zero regulation. And their thing is, they say to you, eat my product. I mean, they don't say it like that. They've got very, very good marketing. And then when we do that, and we develop obesity, they say, well, that's your fault. We didn't tell you to eat that much product. That's your fault. It's like, no. Or we have healthier
0: options, but you just don't buy them.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like, you know, I I often talk about, um, and they're clever. They're clever because what they do is they appeal to our feelings. So, you know, Coke Coke never advertises saying, you know, drink my brown, sugary, fizzy water. (laughs) Like nobody would buy that. They go, open Coke open happiness. And then there's all these pictures of happy people lugging around. There's no pictures of anybody sitting in the, you know, the orthopedic outpatients waiting to have their toes cut off from drinking too much Coke.
0: Yeah. So thank you for that. Can you tell me, is there a difference between being addicted to sugar and having a preference for foods that are sweet? Because you know how sometimes you might say, I'm really addicted to sugar, but it just could be, you just like to eat sweets all the time.
1: Yeah, I think um with any addiction of things there's I have like three categories that people fall into and this this works for as I said gambling smoke cigarettes are a little different but gambling alcohol food and it's like there's three buckets so you've got the person that heart, that that does things here and there so they might be the person that you know eats a piece of cake once every six weeks or a packet of chips once a month or something and they're the person that maybe, you know, gambles once a year on a race or buys raffle tickets every now and then or the person that only has alcohol when they, you know, go to weddings or something like that. So that's that's one category. Then the second category is people that are perhaps overusing things and they would like to stop and if they try a little bit, they, they can. So that might be the person that's drinking, you know, a glass of wine five nights a week. And they're kind of going, you know what, I probably need to cut down. And so, you know, with a bit of effort, they can cut down reasonably easily. And it might be the person whose, you know, friends all get together and bet on baseball or bet on the footy once a week. And that's part of their social thing. And they possibly spend a little more than they would like to, but it's not, you know, not terrible. And it's the same with the food. It might be the person that's saying, you know what, I probably need to cut down. And, you know, and if with a bit of effort, they can. And then you've got the third category of people that actually are doing whatever it is, using their tool despite causing ongoing harm. So for, you know, alcohol, we all know that there's people with alcohol addiction and, you know, they've lost their marriage, they've lost their house, they've lost their job and they still keep drinking or gambling, same. And food is the same. People who have, you know, type 2 diabetes who are told, if you don't stop this, you're going to lose your feet and they still keep eating the food so interestingly i was probably in that third category of sugar addiction so i i think about the way i used to behave i would have and again it didn't start off like that like i didn't start off eating a block of chocolate a day in fact it's probably two blocks by the end (laughs) i i just started off with you know one one little mars bar or one one thing and you know it'd be my little treat for morning tea and then and then you know over time that that i would suddenly have another treat for afternoon tea and then suddenly that treat wasn't quite enough so it had become you know the king size bar and then it became it just it just snuck up and so by the end i was eating i reckon two like big blocks family size blocks of chocolate a day and hiding it so i would have it hidden around the house because again i, I was embarrassed and ashamed about the amount of of food i was eating and so I didn't want anyone to know. And the problem is, of course, you can't actually hide because it gets stored then as fat. And, you know, it, it's very visible when you are overeating um, to the world.
0: Yeah, that's one of those things where the shame kind of comes in because then it's looked at as, well, you have a, a moral failing, so to speak, because you, you can't stop eating and not look at you, you're hiding the food.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yes. And it just then perpetuates the the vortex of doom, that guilt shame cycle where you go, oh my God, I've got to stop this. Oh, and then, you know, and there was a lot of me that didn't want to. I'm thinking, no, because you know, my life is all about chocolate and food. And how am I going to have any fun if I can't eat chocolate? You know, what am I going to do when I want to read a book on the couch and, you know, have my treat myself without my without chocolate? So it became my whole life was actually about the food. So, you know, every event, every catch up with friends, you know, coffee with friends was actually all about the cake. And that became the focus rather than the friend, you know, the friend was almost irrelevant.
0: That was one thing that I really had to work on over the years. I used to take the opportunity when we did go out to eat that I just ordered every, I even ordered dessert first and they would kind of look at me like, Gwen, I'm thinking, what's, isn't that normal? You know, I'm ordering dessert. Yeah. Didn't even, you know, look at that maybe I would be full and didn't need it. But, you know, to me that was just an opportunity to eat whatever and just go all out. But I would do that also when I wasn't with my friends. So, like you said, yeah. it would show up. But, yeah. Uh, that was a big adjustment that when we would go out to eat now is just I want to enjoy my friends, not necessarily just pig out, so to speak.
1: So, yeah, I think it is, It's it is. Um, its its it is – what happens, I think, when you've got a sugar addiction is that the, the food is the hero of your life and that the friends are really just, they're like nothing. And they're just conduits to enable you to indulge in your addiction as often as you can.
0: How would you suggest that someone start eating a low carb food plan? Because usually it's, we're told that, okay, you just got to get rid of everything that you have in your house. Here's the plan. You, there's a, you yeah. a list of f- foods and just go at it. So, how would somebody actually get started to where it doesn't feel like so overwhelming?
1: Yeah. So, I find that people fit into a couple of categories. There are people that like to do that. They go, Right, I'm starting. And they just go in, they clean out all their pantry, they get rid of all the stuff that's in their, in their cupboards, and they are ready. They just go, Fine, give me the plan. And these are often people that ha- are a bit like I was a, a good dieter, you know, good willpower. This is what I'm doing. And you get into that mode. And that's how I started. The difference for me was, though, because this was the first time I was able to lose weight without being hungry, it gave me the headspace to work on my emotional issues, what food represented, because I was actually not hungry. Once you're hungry, when you're losing weight and you're hungry, hunger trumps everything. So hunger will always trump willpower. So that, that, that technique worked for me. For other people, they need a slightly gentler approach. And again, that it depends on their history, what what sort of um stories are in their head, what's happened to them in the past. So then I often say, well, you know and again, if they're if they're very scared of restriction, which again, a lot of diet dieters are, of course, it's about, okay, well, You can have, you know, I do like a transition phase and that's where people will sometimes substitute. So they're looking for, you know, maybe they used to eat ice cream every night on the couch and they might go for a, there's a couple of low-carb ice creams that have different sugars in them and they might use that. And my caveat is that, okay, do that, but reminding yourself that that's a transitional phase because simply swapping high-carb processed food for low-carb processed food, it doesn't work. Doesn't work long term. It's a good transition, but it's not the 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 goal. So for health, and again, it's the idea is that losing weight is about your health. It's not about feeling. It's not about looking good to feel good. You feel good first, and then you can you can maintain it. But the idea is that you know my mantra is about low carb, real food. So trying to get rid of the processed food first. So that would be you know. Sugar is the main, you know, sugar is such a, a big one in there. But there are lots of people who are not actually sugar addicts, they're bread addicts. Yeah. And bread for a lot of people is as addictive. You know, they, you know people come to me go, oh, Lucy, I can't live without my bread. I go, well, you actually can. But we'll work on that. We'll work on your mindset around that. So I would always say just, you know, ditching the white stuff first. So r- white rice, pasta, bread, potato and sugar. If you can eliminate those out of your cupboard as your first step, and it's a big step, then that's really, that's, that's kind of the key. You can use transitional products. You know, if you've, if you've been drinking Coke or Pepsi or something, you might want to go to the no sugar versions. But again, then they're, they're just, they're, that's a holding pattern. But it gives you that space, that mental space to then work on what you're, why you're using food as a tool.
0: Bread isn't a big deal for me. That's one I never... I don't know. It's just the bread, I didn't care. Now, when you had cakes, that was a different <laughs> that was my thing where I had to to transition from that.
1: Yeah. And I think people are, everyone's different. Um, you know, there are some people that are, you know, and chips like uh, crisps, what I'm not sure what you call them. We, we call, call them chips. Chips. Mm-hmm. chips, yeah, great. Um, but yeah, chips for a lot of people are are really problematic and you know. Again, when I grew up, they, they were, you could get a tiny packet. There's no tiny packets. Every packet is some giant packet, and people eat, you know, a 200-gram packet, a giant packet of chips as their snack because you, they just got, keep going in. So, and the thing about chips and lollies is the, that hand-to-mouth action is very yeah. soothing. It's a very, it's biologically soothing. It's why children suck their thumbs. It's why when people are anxious, they bite their nails. Having your hand going to your mouth is soothing. And for a lot of us, that's all we're using food for is a technique to soothe whatever emotion we're feeling.
0: One of the things too, we were talking about before was, or you did mention about the psychological part of, of weight loss. And I don't remember if it was you or one of your videos where you talked about boundaries how setting yes. boundaries could uh, help you with dealing with weight loss issues can you can share with our listeners your your take on that
1: yeah so i think for a lot of people part of the is this it's the part of the battle and it's not the battle with their weight it's the battle that goes on in their head is this negotiating that you do with yourself where you sit there and you look at something and you you've got this story that goes come on just have a little bit a little bit won't hurt you you could do a small bit Everyone else is eating it. Why? Well, you know, God, you should be allowed to too. In fact, yeah, go have a little bit. Just have one. So you have a little bit and it does nothing. And then your brain goes, oh, well, that was nice. And then you're in that next battle of going, just have another bit. Oh, well, I've already had one bit. Oh, just have another bit. No, you. and then and you've got this kind of yin and yang going on and, and that, that becomes exhausting. So that's, that's what I call the battle. It's not the actual losing of the weight. It's this internal battle. So- often talk about the idea that if we have some boundaries then that can be really helpful and the way I like to look at it is if you imagine if you've got a little dog and this little dog sits in its basket every night so you sit on your couch and you're watching telly and the little dog's in the basket and everyone's happy the dog's snoring you're watching telly the world is fine but then maybe one day you come home from work and you've had a really bad day and you just want a little snuggle with the dog. So you say to the doggy, come on, dog. And up he comes and the dog can't believe he's lucky. He's so happy and he snuggles in and you're happy and the dog's happy and this feels good. And you going, yeah, this is good. And then you go to put the dog out that night and you realise your entire couch and you it's completely covered in dog hair. And you go, that's right. That's why I don't have the dog on the couch. So the next night you go to sit down and before you've even sat down, the dog snuggled up next to you and you go, oh, 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 well, he's here now, might as well keep him. And this goes on every, every night for the week. And you get to the end of the week and you've got no clothes left to wear. Your vacuum cleaner's broken from sucking up dog hair. And you go, you know what? Enough is enough. And so you then, that next day, you're ready. So before you even sit down on the couch, you go to the dog in your basket. And the dog looks at you and he's and you feel a bit guilty, but he's looking and you go, no, nope, I'm determined. And you get really firm and you put him in the basket. And he tries to get up, but you really, nope, no, nope, no, nope, no. Nope. So he sits back in his basket and he looks at you all night and you feel really uncomfortable, but you know it's the right thing. And then the next night you go to sit down and he's, he's in his basket, but he's looking at you. It's not quite as hard this time, but he's still looking. And he knows that if you said, come on, he'd be up there in a shot. And then by the third or the fourth night, he's sort of settling in. And then by the fifth night, it's back to normal. The dog's sleeping, snoring in his basket, and you're on the couch and life returns to normal. And that's that's the boundaries. The dog knows his job, you know your job, and life is easy. So sometimes when we eat things that perhaps aren't on our plan, I say to people, all that's happened is you've let the dog on the couch and what you need to do is put him back in his basket as fast as possible because the longer you let him stay on the couch, the, the more confusing it is for the dog and the harder it is to get him to come back into the couch. And what we don't want to do is when the dog is on the couch, we don't then want to go to our front door, open up, and yell out for all the neighbors' dogs to come and sit on the couch with us, <laughs> which is sometimes what we do when we go, oh, well, I've buggered it up now. I might as well eat everything and I'll start tomorrow.
0: Yeah. So I, Nope, go ahead.
1: Oh, that's right. So that so that's how it is for me. I go, okay, I'm just keeping my dog in the basket It's simple. And people sometimes think, oh, I don't know how to do that. I I have no boundaries. I can't control myself. I've got no willpower. And then I go, actually, you do have boundaries. You have them all the time. If you're in a supermarket and you're going down to the shops, we don't usually crack open a packet of chips and scoff them while we're doing the shopping. We would wait till we've got home or we would not buy them in the first place. So, And if we're going into a shop where they sell bottles of wine, we don't usually crack open the wine and start sculling (laughs) it in the shop. It's just not what we do. We have boundaries. We just don't even realise that they're there. And they're there from, again, modelling, you know, modelling. Nobody goes into an alcohol shop and starts drinking the whiskey or the wine straight out of the bottle because it's not, it's just not what happens.
0: Yeah, uh, it kind of goes back to the all or nothing mentality, like you said, with the boundaries. Uh, I think sometimes people think it's going to be a straight line. Like they're going to say, okay, I'm going to start eating well now. And that is, you're never going to supposedly slip up. Uh, so when they slip up it, like you said, it's okay. Uh, I might as well just eat whatever, because you know I had one meal where I didn't yeah. eat on plan and I'm thinking, but it's just one meal out of how many or how many yes. days, you know, one day out of seven. Okay. Or 14 or however many you may have started. It's, it's a, it's a mindset change of, okay, I'll just do better later.
1: Yeah. And again, I think this comes a little bit from what I like to call diet trauma. So, you know, I went to Weight Watchers, I'm a Weight Watchers life member for whatever that means, because basically I lost and gained the same 20 pounds going to Weight Watchers and i would hop on the scales and if i hadn't lost any weight some you know lady would be looking at my food diary and going oh well you know that that's why you didn't and they would point out one you know extra point that i'd had for the week or something like that so it became completely about the food because the expectation was that you should lose weight every week but that's not realistic it's not how our body works we don't weight loss isn't linear it goes up and down all the time and there are so many other things involved in weight loss other than just the food you know if you don't sleep well then you you increase your insulin resistance if you're stressed your cortisol goes up that puts up your insulin there's a whole pile of other things but we were all told it's because you ate that extra piece of fruit or something like that so i think the idea that you have to be perfect is 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 part of the problem and because perfect is so hard, we are the perfect or on a bender.
0: Yeah, I, I'm glad you mentioned sleep because I have noticed, for me personally, if I'm not sleeping well, it's I feel puffy. I don't know if that's just yeah. me, but it's like I feel um, like I retain water more. And but when I get my rest, it feels like my body works like it's supposed to supposed to. So I, I feel better. It's just um, yeah. I tell I always ask people, well, how are you sleeping? And most people. Or like, well, I'm not
1: sleeping too well. No, it makes such a big difference. The, um, you know, so your, as I said, your insulin resistance is increased when your insulin is also it. It is a water retainer. So, oh, okay. it, it insulin, yeah. So glycogen, which is the way our our muscles store glucose. So when we've got lots of glucose in there then we retain water with them. So there is, yeah, absolutely. We are more puffy. And when we eat lots of carbs, we become puffy. That's what people notice straight away. The first thing is, and they go, oh my God, you know, I've had carbs for three days in a row, buckets of them, and I feel really puffy. And I go, yeah, but that's all right. It goes quite quickly as well.
0: Well, Dr. Lucy, um, I thank you for being on the podcast today. I think it was very informational, very encouraging, because that was that's one of the things I always want to do is encourage people, like don't quit, you know, just keep trying to figure it out. Uh, but before we leave, uh, would you please tell the listeners where they can find you on social media, your websites, or any books or anything that you have?
1: Yes, absolutely. So I my business is now called Real Life Medicine because I'm a real-life person and struggle just like real-life people do. So that sort of rang true for me. Um, so all my socials are under Real Life Medicine. Uh, and we do have a YouTube channel also called Real Life Medicine where we just get on and have a little yak every now and then. And there's a couple of... M- bigger YouTube things that I've done to presentations I've done to audiences under the um, Low Carb Down Under banner. So they're they're their main things. We have a website which is called RL Medicine, so RL for Real Life. Some other person stole the Real Life Medicine (laughs) domain, and we can buy it off them, but it's like about $5,000, and I thought it's too hard to type in anyway. So, yeah, rlmedicine.com.
0: Okay, well, thank you. And uh, I'll put all of those on the show notes so everybody can find you.
1: Oh, thank you. And thank you so much for having me. And it's been a pleasure. The
0: information provided in this podcast is for informational purposes only. The views of any guest on the podcast are their own. The host of this podcast is not a medical doctor, nurse or health professional. You should consult with your doctor, nurse or health professional before you begin any weight loss or maintenance or exercise program.